Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 350 for November 13th, 2023. We've got a great interview for you today. As promised, we're going to be talking with Danny Rogers and Rocky Cole, the co-founders of iVerify, a really useful security application for your smartphone. This is something I've been wanting to cover for a long time, so I'm really glad to get these guys finally on the show. I really wanted to dig into security of smartphones today. It turns out that smartphones are actually a lot more secure than our computers. They have the benefit of kind of coming later. They, they came after computers did, so we learned our lessons a little bit, decided that maybe we shouldn't be giving root privileges or admin privileges to uh, the smartphone users, which, you know, has its downsides as well. It means you can't do everything you might want to do on a smartphone like you could on a computer unless you jailbreak the device or root the device, which I recommend against. But we're going to get into all that today. We're going to talk about why why that security matters and how it works. We're going to talk about things like Pegasus and other what we call mercenary spyware. This is legal stuff sold by companies. So, you know, they try to limit it to, quote unquote, the good guys. But we know for a fact that that doesn't always happen. And more importantly, we're going to talk about how to prevent those things and how and how apps like iVerify can be used to not only prevent these things, but actually be on the lookout for these things and warn you when it thinks your device has been compromised. So real quick, before we get to the interview, I want to run through a couple items, a couple words that we throw around uh, that you might not be aware of. One is BYOD, which is short for bring your own device. Uh, This is the phenomenon of working for a company and needing to use your device for work as well and but you bring your own device from home and so they can only control that to a certain extent well apple and google have come up with ways to do that and one of these methods is called multi-device management or mdm and so what that is is these companies can actually install a profile uh, you know you you need to do it but as a condition of employment in a lot of cases they will say well if you're going to work here and you're going to bring your own device then you need to install this profile and what these profiles do is it gives your employer some say over what goes on on your phone, like make sure you have to have a password set and uh, the pin code to to get into your screen, your lock screen must be of a certain caliber, a certain strength. It probably disables you from installing certain apps, things like that. So it's a it's a compromise. If you're going to bring your own device, then you still need to submit to some of these requirements from your company. And the way they impose that is through this thing called an MDM profile or multi-device management. And one of the other terms thrown out was SMB, which is uh, which is just marketing speak for small to medium business. All right, I think that's all we need to prep for this interview. So let's get right to our interview with Rocky Cole and Daniel Rogers from iVerify. Danny Rogers is co-founder and CEO of iVerify and the first mobile threat hunting company. Prior to iVerify, Danny founded Terbium Labs and the Global Disinformation Index. And if all that weren't enough, Danny is also a, has a doctorate in chemical physics and is an adjunct faculty at NYU. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thanks for having us. Our other guest, Rocky, is co-founder and COO of iVerify, uh, an alumni of both the NSA and Google. And Rocky has 12 years of experience playing with both offense and defense in the cyber domain. Welcome to the show, Rocky. Thank you kindly. Looking forward to diving in. As much as I hate, you know, products like Pegasus, I'm just fascinated as an engineer about how they work and the whole cat and mouse game between Apple and all the attackers. So I can't wait to dig into some of this stuff. So before we go uh, any further, the audience may not know. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the iVerify app, how it works, you know, what drove you to develop it. And then maybe I know you've got different versions. So maybe tell me how the different versions of the app uh, are different. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, and so, so I verify was incubated at the storage consulting firm Trail of Bits. Uh, my my good friends Dan Guido mm-hmm. and Alex mm-hmm. Sara founded that company about you know a decade ago, and they are a hundred some person you know all BYOD, all very tech savvy, privacy aware folks. Yeah, and and they needed some sort of mobile security telemetry management solution, but but we're pretty unhappy with the the, the basic offerings. Right, they they decided that MDM for their BYOD fleet wasn't really appropriate. They weren't really happy with anything else out there, and so they essentially rolled their own um, mm. in the form of this iVerify, and and it was a kind of a combination of just basic security telemetry that they could read from just a simple app without requiring a management profile on the device. Um, plus, you know, having some of the best iOS internals experts in the world working there, also some deeper security scanning, jailbreak detection, that kind of stuff. And so putting those two things together, built this internal security tool. And, you know, I was actually a customer of the tool, you know, before I kind of joined the team. Sure, yeah. And, and, you know, developed a reputation of just like the, the right balance of, of mobile security telemetry with, you know, without kind of privacy invasion that's really appropriate for BYOD. And then, you know, the, the, the emergence of this mercenary spyware threat surfaced and, and, and the narrative changed. And I think iVerify went from being like, this is a nice kind of balance for BYOD to it's that plus, you know, this more advanced security scanning that turned out to be extremely relevant in the face of the sort of new narrative around mobile. And so we, we, um, you know, kind of collectively decided it's time to kind of stand this up as a company on its own two feet in response to this emerging threat. And, uh, and so, yeah, we have a couple of different versions. We have, you know, we obviously have a sort of individual consumer iOS app, you know, soon to support Android as well, that, you know, a lot of people in the community have downloaded, have used for a long time, really kind of are fond of and believe in. Um, but we also have a, a newer enterprise offering and an even newer, you know, deeper forensics tool um, called iVerify Plus that mm. uh, we're, we're piloting out in the community now. The iVerify for Enterprise kind of an organizational tool is not just an app, but it's actually a whole management dashboard and, uh, you know, and, and appropriate for for kind of larger SMB or enterprise deployments. And then, of course, this this newly in beta um, forensics tool, which is, you know, really about doing that deeper threat hunting. And I think, you know, in the face of this new threat, I think we're starting iVerify as its own company really with an intention of being um, the first real mobile threat hunting company, you know, going out there and actively looking for, you know, not just known um, indicators of compromise, but, you know, looking for new ones, looking for this, this, um, this now, like I said, emerging, emerging commercialized kind of mercenary spyware threat that, that's becoming a, a pretty you know, decent market unto itself. I try to avoid being hyperbolic. You know, I hate clickbaity stuff, you know, and just needlessly stoking fear. Uh, and I know once we start talking about these, I, when I teach my security class, one of the first things in my class is the big don't panic smiley face from Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide, right? Because, yeah. like, I'm about to tell you all the worst things that are going to happen or that could happen. And then it doesn't mean they're going to happen. I always liken it to sex ed because in sex ed, they teach all the bad stuff that's going to happen. Just take the good stuff for granted, right? <laughs> right? So, so you know. Okay, this, sure. It, we, can, it, we can go with that. <laughs> so, you know, what are the threat models really that I verify is designed to address? I mean, how, what kind of people really need this level of protection? But I also want to know that for the people who do need this protection, I'm curious, what does that mean for like the people that are close to them, like in their social graph? Does that mean that they are also at risk? 
Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, first, a little about me, because I think it's relevant to answering your question. I actually started my career as a, as a hacker at the National Security Agency before moving over to the light side at, at Google <laughs> and defending the internet from, from threats. I, you know, I spent the first half of my career ma making the internet less safe, and so I've been doing my <laughs> penance ever since. I think we have kind of three use cases, really what we're seeing you know the the first use case is like frankly our and it's kind of our original use case is just a base layer of security for maybe for companies who have never used any kind of mobile security tool before i mean i saw a stat the other day that like only 40 percent of companies use any kind of mobile security tool at all and that that includes mdm by the way Hmm. Which, we, which I hope we can get into later because we yes. have a lot to say about MDM. <laughs> um, but so, you know, there are a lot of small companies out there who just want, maybe, as Danny said, maybe they don't think MDM is the right solution for them for a variety of reasons. And they just want a base layer of, of security. And, and frankly, the reason we found that iVerify was because, you know, advanced mobile threats are, are frankly proliferating. I mean, mercenary spyware is moving downstream. It's not just the purview of big governments or really sophisticated actors, mm. you know, sort of less sophisticated actors are learning from the NSO groups of the world. So <laughs> right. our position is that really everyone needs a base layer of security against mobile threats these days. And like really MDM alone is just not going to cut it. So, yeah. So one use case is, you know, companies, they're like, maybe I should do something about mobile security and I'm not super comfortable with MDM or I, or I think I need you know, threat defense and MDM kind of combined, right? So we, we can help with that. Another model that we see is a base layer of security plus really advanced protection for people in really sensitive positions like executives or less thought about, frankly, sysadmins. Mm -hmm. So the only really way to catch critical vulnerabilities like zero days, the stuff that you're going to try to target sysadmins with often are it, you know, our forensics really deep investigations of the phone and we've built technology which which we can talk about later but we've built technology that makes forensics faster cheaper easier quick to deploy easy to do doesn't take all day and so we we see some deployments where everyone in the company gets kind of a base layer of security with the app and then we use our forensics tool to do deeper investigations for those people in really sensitive positions mm -hmm. and then i'd say the third use case and these would be more like the big governments of the world. I, I won't say any by name, but like, you know, like let's say state actors who do routinely already do forensics investigations of the devices in their organization. In some cases, uh, they're interested in using just a forensics tool because they already have really sophisticated security operations and security researchers on staff. So they just use our tool to protect, you know, their, their whole organization who's constantly being bombarded with all sorts of advanced threats. I always liken these kind of tools, you know, to being like hiring a bodyguard, because if you really want security, whatever that security app is or the person is in this case, it needs to have access to everything, right? I mean, they need, need to know where your mistress lives. They need to go with you when you buy drugs, yeah, you know, because they're there to protect you, right? <laughs> you can make these people sign NDAs <laughs> because it was their people and, you know, maybe sue them personally if they screw up. But for if I'm just installing a VPN app or antivirus app or something, some other security app, how do I know that I can trust it? We have seen uh, cases where VPN apps and antivirus apps do nefarious things, mostly data mining and things like that. But some of them, you know, they install custom certificates and they get all up in your you know, encrypted traffic. Uh, and some of them have had their own serious security vulnerabilities themselves and have been, you know, perhaps the cure is worse than disease kind of situation. So 
as a consumer, as I'm looking at these apps and how do I know which ones I can really trust? Well, I mean, I think, I think that's a great point and it gets right to the heart of, you know, why Rocky sort of insinuated MDM is not often the most appropriate solution for people or companies because, you know, at best case, it's putting a management profile on the device. And if it's your personal device, you know, whatever the technical privacy implications of that are, the perception is pretty negative, right? Mm-hmm. right? My employer is putting a management profile on my personal phone. They gain some level of control over it. Um, there's just generally a sort of employee backlash to such sorts of invasive measures. But also, and this doesn't get talked about nearly enough, that, that like MDMs can become themselves the vectors towards insecurity, right? That right. That, you know, now you have this privileged position on a mobile device and if that mdm gets popped well now you have you know more control over a mobile device than you would have had if you didn't have that mdm so i mean i verify again is a bit of the answer to that in that it's not it doesn't require a management profile and and you don't have to take our word for it just go look on the apple app store and there's a privacy report card that's generated by apple that tells you exactly what the app does and doesn't need to see you know one of my favorite things to do is put that report card up next to you know, any common app, I mean, he'll put it next to the Facebook app and you'll see you know, quite a difference just in the length alone <laughs> right, right, um, right. in what's on that privacy report card. So, you know, we designed it to simply not require that level of access, not have that ability. And so it doesn't actually increase your kind of attack surface or your risk profile by using it, whether you're an individual user or an, an enterprise user. All right. But what about the company itself and the software itself? Because Short of being open source, and as much as I like open source, I certainly understand a lot of companies can't just, you know, to go open source would be to give away the uh, the IP. But short of being open source and having you know, that kind of transparency, how can I know that you're doing what you say you're doing? Even my understanding is certainly, and maybe you can correct me, but the privacy nutrition label from Apple is a voluntary thing that you fill out. And I don't know how much vetting they actually do of that. So you could be lying, for example. Oh, no, no, no. They, they I mean... They look at the apps, right? So they, they, they vet the apps that go through the app store for all kinds of things, you know, including mal, you know, malware, privacy violations, et cetera. So, I mean, the iPhone operating system is, is pretty seriously locked down. And, you know, we're not like hacking your phone or anything like that. That's, you know, we're not doing anything that you're not supposed to be able to do. And again, Apple looks over our shoulder on this app, right? And so, yeah, so so there's you know we're not putting a management profile on the device. There's nothing that you can really do from an app, other than get the telemetry that that we're able to get that can read any of your private data or anything like that. All right, so we've talked about MDM a lot. Now, I'm sure there's many people in the audience who have no idea what we're talking about. So <laughs> tell us what an MDM is, and then maybe explain to us you know in this bring your own device kind of environment, you know what should employees understand about what that really means. I mean, cause I've been employers that said, okay, well, if you're going to use your phone, you've got to install this profile. I'm like, huh, what does that mm-hmm. mean? As an engineer, I have some serious questions, but I can see a lot of people thinking, eh, okay, <laughs> I'll just do it. So as an employee, if, if my employer is asking me to do this, what should I understand about the personal privacy and security implications of that? And then I'm also curious to know, are there any, if, if I remove that profile, are there any lingering remnants of such things or does it really go back to being my device after I remove it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, so what an MDM essentially does is it uses functionality built, you know, if you're using an iPhone by Apple or if you're using an Android by Google to reduce device functionality or like force certain behaviors, right? So for example, um, you can use a management profile to force an OS update. Um, You can force someone to have a strong pin code. 
Um, you can remove access to like Siri or iCloud mm-hmm. or something like that. And so the, the idea essentially of an MDM is to like, re, you know, there's a term of art that we use called reducing the attack surface, right? Just reducing the opportunities that mm-hmm. adversaries have to do bad things to your phone. But, you know, like a lot of things in the security world, you know, the MDMs are only as secure as the employers are, you know, scrupulous putting them on your devices. Like MDMs can also be abused by people, you know, who don't maybe have a strong moral compass. Right, plenty right. of examples of this, of this happening. Or who just right? want to like, get overzealous about the things they want to be able to do to your phone, as far as I'm concerned. Right. They could be doing it for well, the right reasons and still be invasive. Right. Like, for example, they can, you know, use an MDM to install VPNs or apps on the device that actually, like, can track your user behavior and actually can right. be really invasive, right? And that, and that certainly has been done. And I think the net effect of this is that, I mean, as Danny kind of alluded to, is that, you know, for, you know, whether it's true in the aggregate or not that that MDMs are invasive, I think is beside the point, because it is certainly true that MDMs are are pretty widely despised by, by, (laughs) by users. I mean, I mean, you can go look at some of the reviews for them in the app store. Like, I'll just beat up on one just for fun, because it's my former (laughs) employer. Like if you go look at Google's iOS management profile, it has like a 1.7 star review in the app store. <laughs> and, you know, we, we have a 4.7 star. I'm just like to throw that out there. And, and the not reason, that we're counting or anything. No. And, 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 and the, the, the feedback is basically like one, I don't know what it's doing. It's not transparent and it's annoying to use. Like it's difficult to implement. I don't know. And I don't trust it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. It just, it, like it's, it, it feels icky, right? It does feel icky. It absolutely. feels icky. That's what it boils down to. And and there's no getting you could you could argue technically your way uh, any way you want, but at the end of the day, it feels icky. It feels one one point seven stars icky. <laughs> to your question about like lingering effects, I mean, if used properly the way they're meant to be used, I mean, no, you know, uh, once the MDM is removed from from the phone. The, the privileged access ceases, right? But again, you know, the way that an MDM is abused is by forcing settings on the phone that, that do increase the user vulnerability. And, and that certainly can linger, like if you, if you are compromised because of the, you know, the, if, you, if you end up compromised because your MDM gets compromised <laughs> you, itself, right? Which is a super scary situation. I wouldn't say widespread, but, but, but super scary to think about. Um, like that would certainly have lingering effects because once you're compromised, it's really hard to reel that back in. But just to just to drive home on that, so my understanding is what it will happen is it will remove the restrictions that were there, but it won't necessarily change the settings back to the way it was before. Like for example, if it, it required a six-digit pin code or an alphanumeric pin code instead of just the four-digit, which was the default, I think it's six now. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be what it was. I mean, you would have to you now have the capability to reduce it if you wish, but it's going to be right. what. It, it's going, to, it's going to leave the settings at the higher settings when it left. You'd have to now go back and kind of undo what it did, right? I think that probably varies. Mm. That probably varies MDM to MDM. That's actually a great question. It's The last one I used was actually um, Google's management profile properly that they rolled that they rolled themselves because I was a Googler. And uh, in that case, what they did was when you unenrolled, they actually wiped your whole device. And so that has its own <laughs> set of problems, right? Because it's like oh, that's a lingering was, effect. So right. I was using right. I was using a Pixel. It was fine because Android is partitioned, you know, the work profile and the personal profile, and that's mm. actually super helpful. It's like wipe yes. my work partition all you want. I don't care, right? I mean, it's a little right. annoying if all of your stuff gets wiped, 
but on on iOS, you know, if you have if if you don't have it set up right, you can wipe a lot of personal data too, and that certainly has a lingering effect. I'd be mad. Yes, <laughs> that's actually something I wish iOS would implement because I mean, how many times have you know have parents and grandparents been handing their phone to the grandkids or, or the kids or whatever and want to play a game? Can I play a play game on your phone? Because they're five and they don't have their own iPhone yet, which in America maybe they would have mine six, but. Um, <laughs> You know, where I could set up a profile and say, okay, put it in. And I know there are different ways you can manage that, but it'd be nice if they could put it in. All right, here's a little Johnny mode, and I give it to Johnny, and it's restricted for him. And I, you know, profiles would be mm -hmm. nice. So I'm curious to know, what do you guys think about third party app stores? And since uh, you've, you've already brought up Android, we got a nice comparison there. Uh, Android, for a long time, has had the ability, and you have to go through a couple, jump through a couple hoops, but you can get apps from non Google Play stores. And yeah. Apple's been very adamant to say that, no, 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 we, we don't want to allow that because we think that it's a security risk for our users um, because we do a good job of vetting our apps and who knows what these third parties are going to do. They're not going to do as good a job as we are. What is your take on that argument and how good do you think that the Apple apps are? And I'm curious if you know about Google Play as well. How good are they at weeding out bad apps? Oof, good question. I mean, this is a personal opinion of mine, um, and I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer in any direction, right? Because on the one hand, you know, I think the 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 technical controls that make an iPhone secure, for example, are not necessarily in the 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 closed app store, right? It's the sandboxing, it's mm -hmm. it's all the other security features of an iPhone design, right? But if you start to take into account like user behavior and, you know, the sort of the, the non-technical part of it, so to speak, I think I net out, you know, I net out that there is value in having control over what goes on the phone. Right. I think back to the days of Blackberry, like Blackberries used to sign their batteries, right? You couldn't go buy a third party battery and the, and the wow. logic behind it. I mean, I, I, I literally like had a conversation many, many years ago. This is just telling you how old I am with, <laughs> with Mike Lazaridis himself. It was like, you know, when people were buying knockoff batteries and putting them in their Blackberries and then they would catch fire on their face, you know, <laughs> they would blame Blackberry, not, sure, right, not right. the, not the battery they bought. Right. And so they signed the batteries and basically said, you can't use a third party because, because we're getting blamed when you put, when you do something dumb. Right. And so I think, I think there's an element of that in controlling the apps that you put on your phone and having someone look over your shoulder. And I think Apple does a pretty good job of looking over the developer's shoulders. I, I will also like say, I mean, I, I think there's been examples of Google whiffing it, right? And been things sneaking into the Play Store, mm -hmm. probably slightly more often than things have snuck into the Apple App Store. Right. Though it has, I know it's happened both ways, but yeah, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, it's happened both ways. I, my sense is it's a, it's, there's a little more lax on the Play Store. But, you know, at, at the same time, I understand the argument of like, it's very limiting in terms of, I mean, I bought this phone, but I can't do whatever I, I can't do whatever I want with this hardware, right? It's like there's some, there's some offense taken to that, right? And I understand that. So I, I understand both sides of the argument. I net out that when you take into account human behavior, that having control over what happens on that phone makes it overall safer, maybe a little less open, a little less free. And yeah, sure, we all hate the, we all give up 30. I mean, trust me, we get that we give up 30% of our revenue to this big company, <laughs> right? right? Um, right. you know, and so, like all of that taken into account just purely from a sort of user, like general user safety perspective, I think like having control over what happens on that piece of hardware, which is full of our most intimate data. Yeah. 
is is a net positive. And when if and when that does change, which I, I think a variable might, and it and and there's good arguments to be made for it changing. Yeah. I do expect there to be more mess, right? And and you know, in addition to the sort of super advanced stuff that we focus on, right? There's this whole universe of stalkerware and things that you know, either get sideloaded or get loaded that are you know say they do one thing and do another thing, whether it's you know stalking a uh, you know, in a domestic abuse situation or stealing a, a bank log in whatever it is or mining Bitcoin, et cetera. I think that you're going to see more of that happening. It's inevitable. Um, yeah. You know, and whether that's worth the trade is not, it's not, not my call at the end of the day, but I think there is definitely going to be a trade made. But, you know, Danny, I, I will say I, I do agree with that. But I also think from like a security point of view, I mean, yes, having, Having Apple look over everybody's shoulder like has undoubtedly made the apps safer. I mean, I don't think anyone can really argue with that. But I think what you know Apple has really done that I think has made makes iPhones a more secure platform for let's say most users. Note that I'm not going to say all users, <laughs> but for most users, um, is the strong sandboxing. Like I think that is that makes it really hard for kind of run of the mill actors to, to do bad things with the phone. Also exploit mitigations, we can get into this, but like lockdown mode, actually, it's not for everybody, but when you do need it, it's actually quite helpful. And, um, and code signing and entitlements as well are, are strong mechanisms as well. So, you know, I think if you, add, I mean, our VP of research, we, I talked with him about this the other day and he, his point of view is like, if you ask every iOS security expert, the first thing they'll say is like sandboxing is like the number one thing. To clarify a couple points. So first of all, that sandboxing, those kind of things, those technical means you're talking about, that would apply to even third-party apps. I'm assuming if, if they had to open things up, that applies to any app running on the phone, right? Yeah, so right. even if they do have a third-party app store, you will get those benefits. Yeah, those are, those are design features of the OS. Right. And so like that helps when you're talking about an app that's trying to do something else. But if you're talking about a, a fake bank app that's you know doing something like technically very dumb but still impactful right like i think that's what that's sure. the that's where the problem lies right i think legally apple is going to end up having to do it and i th and i think honestly you should have the right to run anything you want yeah, on a phone absolutely and i think if, you know an android phone you know where you only load apps from the play store and it's out of an out of the box pixel where you it's it's essentially nearly as secure I mean, maybe there's differences in the technical, like in the sandboxing and stuff, but but I think generally speaking, it's it's a pretty secure device. It's when people start sideloading that they get things get messy. Right, and so for that reason, as a security advocate, I will certainly be recommending to anybody who listen to me that you always go through the Apple App Store, even if you mm. have the ability to go outside of it. Same thing was I, same thing I would recommend. Yeah, unless for you're Apple. like a really um, unless you're like a particularly expert sure. user. The same way, yes. like if you run your phone in developer mode and you run test flight, people can push things to right. you. Or run beta yeah, software. Yeah, like, like, like I can run test flight and people can send me apps to run a, a, in their test flight and right. like it doesn't get nearly the scrutiny and they can do all kinds. And there's been examples of, of malicious actors, you know, sending me something like, hey, just install this test flight thing and then download my app and yes. then now you're mining them Bitcoin or something dumb like that. Right? Or apps that have used that function to get around Apple requirements on apps right. uh, to bypass some of the Apple exactly. restrictions by making it a test exactly. app. Exactly. All right, I have a very specific question that I don't know if you have the answer to, uh, but I've always been curious. If an app is deemed, if makes it into the App Store, on the Apple App Store, and or I guess Google, if you know this, if it makes it into the App Store, but 
later it either changes or it, uh, Apple or Google finds out, oh, this is this is malicious. This is actually bad, or it violates our terms of service, and they take it down from the App Store. For the people who have already installed that app, is there any notification to them? Does it get removed? Does it get disabled? Or if you've already installed it, you're just screwed until you realize that that's a bad app. Oh, great question. That's a good question. <laughs> so I don't quote me on this. We should go look it up afterwards. If you're listening to this podcast, do your own research. <laughs> Which, as Danny and I know from our prior lives, moonlighting as misinformation experts and researchers, is <laughs> right. the most horrific phrase you'll ever hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't do your research <laughs> by asking Joe Rogan. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. But I do believe you get a notification from at least I can I can speak to Google. I think if Google gets something out of an app store, I think you get a notification. Well, if any of us figure that out, I will put it in the outro notes when <laughs> with the results of that research, if we can figure it out. But I was just curious if you knew. Okay, uh, moving on. So what does it mean? Let's let, let do some basics. What does it really mean to jailbreak a phone or to root a phone? And I'm, I'm curious, just historically, how hard is it to do today? And how, how has that kind of evolved over time? Because obviously, I'm hoping what you're going to say is they've gotten better. <laughs> yeah, um, but <laughs> yeah, I can I can take this one. Um, so the way that I think about it is jailbreaking a phone means to release your device from the quote bolts and shackles as my vp of research calls it of some of the restrictions that apple puts on puts on ios so it means that you can run you know apps outside the sandbox so like between the sandboxes but you can run apps across the sandboxes basically which is verboten mm -hmm. if it's not jailbroken and you can also root the device which basically means like if you pull up like a proper terminal on a linux machine you can run you can run pretty much any program you want there that's basically basically gives you the equivalent of running a real terminal on ios and you know if you jailbreak it's like god mode yeah it's like god mode and it gives you the ability to customize the phone in a lot more ways you know you can change the behavior using system settings you can like go into the system settings and, and make changes that give you a lot more permissions or have the phone run in different ways than it's not supposed to and that basically the sum result of it is that it's easier to attack the device and and more importantly gain a position of privilege and stay stay hidden as malware well and i mean if you can do that to your phone so can anyone else do that to your phone is basically right and, that, and that's kind point. of the difference between like hacking and jailbreaking right like if you jailbreak a phone then like anyone can access your phone if you right. hack it that usually just means you've given yourself a privilege you've given yourself as the hacker mm. a privileged access to mm -hmm. the device but you might not be able to work across the across yeah. apps, for example or across the sandbox for example yeah i mean a lot of these terms i mean there's there's very specifics depending on what scenario you're talking about but yeah to your question about prevalence i mean that's a really interesting question i mean i think i would say it used to be quite easy to, to jailbreak a device i mean what you used to do is you used to basically find the oldest version of you used to find someone running a really old version of the os which gives research or hackers i should say a, a long runway to go figure out what the vulnerabilities are right and then and yeah. then you give it a crack so to, you know jailbroken devices tend to be older and, and they tend to be um, running older opera versions of the OS. Recently, though, I'm happy to report that uh, my VP of research says we haven't seen a full jailbreak for iOS 16 yet. So in order to gain mm. privileged access, you actually have to do like a lot of smaller jailbreaks. And, and really, like we are, generally speaking, moving away from jailbreak detection as kind of the means of hunting down like mobile malware. It's just less useful. Yeah, and, I, and Apple, uh, they sign all their software, and uh, another thing they often do is they stop signing older versions so that you can't, like, go back, right? I mean, because that, that, it's downgraded tax, yeah. right? It's, it's taking a phone and putting an older vulnerable OS on it so that you can jailbreak it. They disallow that now, right, by not signing those older versions anymore. 
So let's talk about uh, how do you tell? How can I, either as a user, me personally, or maybe more to the point, how does your software tell? How do you know if a phone has been jailbroken or hacked? And then tell me what sort of things, as much as you can, Tommy, I'm sure this is proprietary, but you know, <laughs> what sort of things you might consider, quote unquote, ind indicators of compromise? Well, first of all, the way you tell as a user is you download a verify and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we'll tell you. you um, sure, I mean, you, you set go. me up for it. Uh, no, but but in all seriousness, how how I mean, I am serious. Actually, that is a good way to tell. We obviously do have you know proprietary ways of doing of doing this, and and as Rocky said, there's sort of the base layer of protection that comes with our our individual app, and then there's you know added layers of protection that we we add on for more sophisticated or at risk customers. And so you know we're we're, we're looking both for kind of known indicators as well as kind of more generic indicators. So, you know, things like, is the phone jailbroken, right? Or, you know, have things have, you know, various parameters changed, et cetera, that, that normally wouldn't change. Um, and then with our, with our more advanced forensics tool, we're able to do a lot more. We're able to look for, like I said, more general signs of, of anomalies or processes that shouldn't be running and, and, and things that are broken out of sandbox and stuff like that that I think are part of that threat hunting arsenal, right? That tells us that, you know, that we're looking at something that's not supposed to be happening right now, even if we don't know exactly what it is. So, all right, let's talk a little bit about the sandboxing because you've mentioned it a couple of times. So in terms of an indi indicator of compromise, how do I know, how could I tell that something has violated the sandbox and broken outside of a sandbox? So maybe tell us what it really means to be sandbox. What does that do to an app? And then how, how might you be able to detect that some app is that's, that. that's where we're going to get real quiet, actually. <laughs> I mean, you as okay. a user using your phone day to day aren't going to be able to tell. That's kind of the power of it, right? Um, is that an adversary, if they're able to run something, you know, as root on your phone, they can run it in such a way that you wouldn't have any idea, right? If, if Pegasus is running on your phone right now, you don't know. It's a zero click exploit, meaning they can send you this carefully crafted iMessage or whatever the vulnerability they're exploiting is. And you don't have to take any action. You don't know what happened. Right. Right. Maybe you notice that, you know, it's getting warmer. It's batteries running down. But even then, right, they, they're, they're very good at covering their tracks. Once you do the forensics on the device, you can start to see either specific known indicators, right, so the existence of certain files or something like that, right? Or you can start to see, you know, more general anomalies, right? Something is running in a way it shouldn't be running, but only if you do the deep forensics and, and, you know, essentially what our advanced tool is, is, is we're productizing that forensics capability into something that can run, as Rocky said, fast and, and efficiently and at scale. So it's not the job of like some technician taking, you know, many hours or many days to pick apart, uh, you know, a, a, an image or a backup file or something. And instead, you know, something that happens kind of in real time and live and can tell you, you know, when within, 20 seconds, something weird is happening on this device and we should take a closer look. Yeah. And just to add a bit to that, I mean, I can, I can, I will, uh, I'll reveal a touch more than Danny did there. Uh, although not, not a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the way that you tell if your phone is hacked is, is you, you know, each attack leaves fingerprints, right? Just like at a crime scene, there's, you, you do dusting for fingerprints, right? You kind of do that mm -hmm. on phones. That's why they call it forensics, actually. I mean, it takes its, you know, the etymology goes back to, to dusting for fingerprints and, and, you know, Sherlock Holmes with his magnifying glass, right? Finding locks of hair. Yeah. And like there's, yeah. there's the, there's the equivalent of those artifacts on, on phones and, and they look different, 
from from one piece of malware to the other. Like there's not like one thing you look for that you're like, bing, it's jailbroken, right? Yeah. Um, and the way that you get really good at, at quickly saying like, hey, there's really advanced malware on this device is you do kind of what CrowdStrike did for desktop. And I give them a lot of credit. Their business model is dope, first of all. <laughs> They're the bee's knees. <laughs> um, and they, like basically what you do is- Wow, haven't heard that expression know, in a very long and time. And you, you build up what, I mean, this is the cheesiest thing I'm gonna say, I hope all day. And I'm not even, and I'm not even the dad in the group here, but, um, but like you build up community immunity, right? Like you build up a big pool of processes and file names and domains and shortcuts, right? And if you see one that isn't in your massive database of those things that looks funny, then you go light bulb, I should look at that. Right. And that's how you go about building, building IOCs. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it is. It is, it is an art, not a science. It is a volume game as much as it is about having a good ma magnifying glass. And it's about a, having a good set of processes whereby you sort wheat from chaff. Not that differently than an intelligence agency might look for a needle in a haystack, so to speak. So let me get this straight. So sandboxing really, though, as far as the concept goes. So this is a set of permissions. It's a set of guardrails around an application that says, okay, you can see your own data. You could maybe see a couple things from system data if you get permissions from the user, but you can't see other apps data. I mean, it's it's, it's sort it's right. this container, right? This is sort of a that limits what they can have access to. Is that is that a good summary? Essentially, I mean, I think it does go technically deeper than sure. that, right? It's like down at the at the you know processor level, right? Of of you're running in your own. I mean. You're running in your own sort of machine, essentially right. your own environment. And to your other point about these forensics details, they're kind of like Dexter, if you because he's smart about like he wears gloves, he picks up his stuff. There are some of these malware yeah, tools that are right. smart enough to try to clean them up after themselves too. Is that correct? Not only clean them up, but leave when they need to leave. Don't overstay your welcome. Mm. You know, it's like when you've got what you when you've got what you need, hit the road. You don't need to stick right. around. You know, you know the cops are showing up. So <laughs> Pack up shop, leave, yeah. run out the back door. You know, some sometimes we hear the back door slam. So, you know. <laughs> wow! Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, we're torturing. We're torturing this analogy pretty, pretty well. Um, so let's talk about local. this this marketplace. What is the marketplace for mercenary spyware like today? We've obviously talked about Pegasus already from the NSO group. This is maybe the most popular one. Surely, however, there are there are others. So, how do products like this compare, for example, to even the other things you mentioned, stalkerware? What 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 does this marketplace look like? What what kind of flavors are there for mercenary spyware? Yeah, I mean, there's, there is this universe of like mass market stalker where, you know, people using it at kind of the individual consumer level, they know, you know, it's, if you know to look, you know, it's there, it's, it's not doing anything particularly spooky, it's hard to do on iPhones, it's more common on Android. But I think the bigger thing is, is the more advanced stuff, right? The world has changed in the past few years that that the ability to, to go after a, you know, a, a, a modern, up-to-date, secure mobile device in a stealthy way sort of used to be the provenance of like the most elite cyber actors only using it kind of in the most discerning kind of way, right? So unless you were an, an international terrorist fugitive or something like that, you didn't really right. have to... You could say my the iPhone is secure out of the box, right? And that's what's different, right? Is that that capability has been commercialized and you know pegasus is just the most well publicized version you know in part because it's been used to go after journalists and so you right. know it's, it's going to get a lot of publicity 
But what it's done is demonstrate there's a market and a robust market, right? That, that, you know, the people who build these tools have a market for them and are selling them to people who will pay money to buy them. And it's now no longer the provenance of these very small elite groups of people. And instead something that if you have enough cash, you can buy. Now it's not, you know, it's not yet hit the sort of everyday credit card theft level type of, of ubiquity, right? But it's, but it's still, a lot more ubiquitous than it once was. So if you're talking about kind of who needs to worry about it, you know, I wouldn't say everyone needs to be worried about it. It's not a sort of mass market thing yet, but I also think that it's no longer just the international terrorist fugitives, right? But but now we're talking about people who work in high level in finance or people who have, you know, who work in, you know, sensitive industries, right? If you work at a space company or in private equity or, I mean, and of course the frontline human rights defenders and investigative journalists right. and politicians, right? The people we could hear more about in the media coverage, but there's a whole universe of people we don't hear about who wouldn't talk to the media if it happened to them, but who are still very much in the crosshairs for this stuff, right? Because the, there's, there's as much of an economic espionage use case here, you know, even a commercial espionage use case that I think is, is already here and already something that, 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 that people need to think about. And so now, you know, you're in this environment, especially post COVID where you have a lot more BYOD, a lot more people kind of using their personal devices for work and also this emerging threat. And so you're in the worst possible scenario of an emerging threat and an uncontrolled risk. And so that's, that's Mm -hmm. why we think that's why we started this company was to do something about that because there's, it's a new, it's a new, new narrative around mobile. These things to be seem to be kind of self-limiting in, in a couple different ways. First of all, like you said, that I mean, iPhones uh, are getting really, really hard to get into uh, for one thing. So the, the, the exploits you find that can get into them are extremely valuable. And so they tend to take a lot of money and a lot of, you know, effort to... But that that's not new. I mean, they always were. I think it's actually the other way around where they've always been hard to get into. I think... And, and yes, every time something gets released, it gets, you know, that particular vulnerability gets closed, right? right? But I think it's more that, like, now the the desire to get into iPhones is now a commercial, is now a commercial market, sure. right? And so so I think you're going to actually see this accelerate mm-hmm. and decelerate. And, yeah, and I we've mean, seen that know, in our data. We've seen more it, signatures yeah. added in the last six months than we did in the last three years. Yeah, I mean, here's here's a couple here's a couple stats for you that I just came across the other day. Like, if you just look at stuff published by like Google's tag, right? Their threat analysis group. Shout out to Billy Leonard, by the way, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, you know, critical vulnerabilities on Android grew from 571 to 897 over the last couple of years. So that's about 138% increase, right? Hmm. Um, and another stat, about 80% of zero-day vulnerabilities uh, were on Apple iOS platform. So then if you do the math on that, you can see there's a really big growth just on iOS vulnerabilities. Wait, and I think what that reflects... 80% too, of the total... Obviously... 80% of the total is Apple? Yeah. 80% zero of the zero days. Of, of zero days. Disclose yeah. zero wow. days. Disclose zero days. And so I think that reflects a couple things. Obviously, there's a bit of like the... There's a bit of bias in the statistics because there's more people looking for zero days now. Like Google and Apple have True, kind of stepped yeah. up their security game, right? Which is great. Yeah, you should give right. them credit for that. But I think what it also reflects, as much as, as, much as the increased scrutiny is the fact that like adversary there is now juice to be squeezed from hacking a phone you know i mean maybe 
10 years ago, that wasn't the case. You know, people didn't use their phones for work as much. They didn't have as much of their digital lives on their phones as they do now. I mean, we, we say in some cases that phones are almost extensions of our minds. Oh yeah. Maybe a little, uncom- maybe that's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> no, I, think it's, I think you're right on. Yeah. Maybe they shouldn't be. We can talk about that separately if you want to, <laughs> but, but I think the fact remains is that there's an incredible treasure trove of data on phones these days. And like, there is just a, there is demand and supply for these vulnerabilities. And I, I don't see that. I don't see that really fundamentally changing anytime soon. I, I think it's going to, I think it's going to accelerate. I agree with Danny on that. All right. So we often say in security that if you have physical access to a device, basically all, all bets are off. <laughs> you know, a lot of these things we've been talking about so far, certainly Pegasus, yeah. these are remote exploit, exploits, which are devastating, but they, mm-hmm. they are still remote. But if I have, if I've got your device in my hand and I can take it away from you and do things to it, that's a whole different ballgame. So I'm just curious right. from your perspective, how does having physical access to a device change the attack opportunities? Help us understand that. And for example, uh, uh-huh. Celebrate, the forensics tool Celebrate that we have heard being used at the border with customer border control or by law enforcement yeah. officers who take your device in the back room and, and then we're bringing it back and hand it to you. Tools like Celebrate, how, how do they work and how they differ from these kind of remote zero, zero click things? And then can, yeah. I'm curious to know, can apps like iVerify either block access to these sorts of forensics tools, or can they at least allow you to can make it tamper evident? Can you make it so that uh, I know that this has been employed against my device? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll start this, you know, as a former, as a former, you know, hacker on the government side of things. I'm sad to say that if someone has physical access to your device, you're pretty much screwed. I mean, physical access is like the one thing that really no security tool can can help you much with. I mean, obviously you can help yourself by having a strong passcode, obviously. Right. I mean, that's like to some, in some situations, biometric lock is helpful. If you're at the border, it's actually not right. <laughs> we can, which we, which we can get into. Yeah. I would but, like to t- touch but, on that in a minute. Go ahead. Keep going though. Yeah. But yeah, like having a strong passcode helps. I mean, frankly, just like not having your phone with you when you're in a vulnerable situation is frankly helpful. I mean, physical access a lot, you know, can allow you to gain access to really everything. And that's why it's super critical to, to, to have a degree. that you can't root for us. Yeah. I mean, I think it's to a degree. I mean, if you have a powered off iPhone, like there's still exploits required to be able to get past it. If you have, you know, if, if it's, if it's a strong passcode, so like there are things that you can do, right. As, as Rocky said, if you're, if you're traveling through a checkpoint, right. Like turn off the biometric, turn off your phone entirely. Right. So that it requires a strong pass and have a strong passcode, at least in the U.S., I believe they can compel you to put your finger on the sensor. Put your, they can put your, you can hold it up to your face, right? But mm. but they can't compel you to reveal your strong passcode. And so, you know, but but if they're if they're able to break through the passcode piece, then they have access as if they're you. Right. So in terms of what's to detect, you know, there's not much to detect. You know, if they're breaking into it in other ways, I'm not sure that physical access is that much different than the, you know, the, the biggest difference is that they are there with you and honestly, like a, a wrench to the head. The is, XKCD is, you know cartoon, what I mean? right? like, Yeah, exactly. Like it's not, it, you know, <laughs> I think the pernicious one is really the remote one because you have no idea that it's happening. And they can do it from somewhere else. There's no cost to them in that sense. Like they don't have to go reveal their presence to you and hit you with the wrench or whatever, right? And and so I think that like that's not really a case we're focused on. I mean, I think there are probably some like, you know, technical overlaps between how we do our forensics and how forensics companies do their forensics, short of we were you know, we're, our users are willingly, you know, doing this for themselves rather than 
having it done against their will in a in a hostile situation, right? Important so, distinction, but yes, very well, very important <laughs> distinction to us, right? Uh, and, people you know, are paying speaking, people are paying us to to help them with this rather than right, <laughs> and others paying us to right. do this to them, which is right. certainly a very big chasm of ethical difference. So the indicator there. of compromise similar, like it, would your app be able to to know that if I went to the border control and they say and they and I gave them my device and they went in the back room and brought it back to me. Would I be able to tell? It it entirely depends on what they did to okay. it. Yeah, I you mean, know. Cellbrite has so many different <laughs> use cases. I mean, like, the core use case of, of Cellbrite is, like, gathering... Well, it is gathering digital forensics, but it's digital forensics, like, evidence of a crime, right? So it's like, Cellbrite is like, they are looking for your messages, they are looking for your emails, they are looking for your call records. Like, we, we aren't looking at any of that stuff. That stuff's not helpful for us, really. It's not helpful for us anyway in the first place. And some of these tools actually use the port. I mean, that's another reason you, when the physical device, if, thought, if you have access to the Lightning port or the, now the USB-C port, doesn't that give you – because there's these weird DFU modes. I forget what that stands for. Well, if you – I mean, if you trust it, right, there, there's there's definitely like security controls in place for if you – you know, Now for, there are. For those scenarios. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Apple, yeah. yeah, well, there have been for a while. Well, Apple did, right? did, um, I think iOS 16 is when you first started seeing the pop-ups of do you want to trust this thing that you just plugged in? Right, but that's iOS 16. I didn't think it went back that far, but maybe, maybe. But yes, you're right. Apple has started to lock that stuff down too. Uh, and I just want to make a very clear the point you said about turning off your phone, because when you turn off your phone, that requires you to use a pin code to start it back up. You can't use biometrics, correct? Correct. correct. All right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Apple and, if, and Android, if you'd like to throw it in there too. But what we've talked about a few, but what kind of security mechanisms do they build into their phone now? Do they have their own built-in jailbreak detection? Because like, I would think that sometimes for like warranty purposes, sometimes Apple wants to... Because they've got indicators for if you've got water in there. I, they used to have that. Do they also yeah. have something about, okay, you've, you've jailbreak a device that's out of warranty. We're not going to fix it. So do they have that kind of stuff built in? And then talk to me about lockdown mode. I would think that's really pretty pretty yeah. cool. So I'd like to know what you think about that and what it does for you. Yeah, I mean, in general, I would say, well, at a high level, Let's talk a little bit about the difference versus Apple and Google, and then we can get into specific things Apple's done. So people often ask, like, is an iPhone or an Android safer? And, like, the honest answer is, like, it depends. Right. Right. Um, you know, I do think I do think all of the, the like, you know, the stuff we've talked about earlier, you know, the, the sandboxing and, and you know, the, the App Store and, you know, uh, attestations and code signing and all that, like, all that is super helpful. But, like, you know, on the Apple side of things, like the walled garden that is their ecosystem has in some ways created space for really sophisticated actors to move a little bit unchecked, right? Google has kind of different problems. Google's main problem with Android is when I was at Google, I saw this chart that was like a pie chart. And I mean, I swear to God, it looked like people were still using Android one. Oh, <laughs> like, sure, I mean, yeah. it's like at any point in time, and it's like, it's like, there's like a slight majority of people or a plurality rather a slight plurality of people using the latest OS. Right. And then it's like every other version right. is still kicking. And like, you can immediately see from a security point of view, how that creates all sorts of vulnerabilities because if people are running Android three, people have had a long time to pick that thing. Apart, right. Right. So that's the kind of problem that, that Android has, by the way, just a quick plug. This is something I verify is really good at helping with. We usually tell people well before Apple and Google does that they need to update their, their mm -hmm. operating system. Mm -hmm. Quick, quick plug. <laughs> but as far as specific, you know, as far as Apple, I mean, you know, their strategy isn't to do detections. Their strategy is to, is to prevent attacks from happening in the first place. You know, and right. so the App Store is part of it. Sandboxing is part of it. Uh, lockdown mode is part of it. You know, and what lockdown mode does is it basically turns off 
a good chunk of functionality of the phone in the name of removing vulnerabilities that have been sort of recently or frequently exploited by mercenary spyware. And, you know, what it does basically is it turns your phone into a very luxurious brick. (laughs) (laughs) And, and some people need a luxurious brick, you know, I mean, if you're a journalist reporting on human rights abuses and pick your country and an authoritarian government is going after you, like a brick is exactly what you need. And I highly recommend the brick, right? But if you're everyone else, and maybe you want to be protected against malware, and you don't want a brick in your pocket, like there are better alternatives. Well, I <laughs> use lockdown mode, I, I've, and I honestly didn't notice that much of a difference. I don't. I think a lot of the features that it disabled, like live previews of links that are sent to me in messages, or, and I mm-hmm. think even things like photos, it'll still show you photos as long as it's from a contact you've exchanged with before. I. I I, I actually well, but there's some there's some parts of the user experience it does. Break, well, right? so like talk about JavaScript this. on well JavaScript on websites and things. And like how many that. websites like today will? I know that a lot of them use JavaScript, but most of them are supposed to have a built-in thing that says, "Well, if JavaScript won't run, give them something by default." I mean, how many web pages actually do yeah, not but work that, without that JavaScript? By default, is not it, well. Look, it, it's not that it's not usable. It's that it's certainly a degraded user experience, and I think it's more that. A company like Apple, like user experience is the first and foremost, most important thing. And so for them to voluntarily offer a degraded user experience is like a significant. That's true. Yeah. It was a big deal. And I was actually pretty pleasantly, but surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in their mind, it's a way to offer something to the sort of subset of, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, Apple is a luxury consumer goods product company, right? They're like probably more in common with Louis Vuitton than, you know, <laughs> yeah. than like a, you know, someone else. I mean, they do amazing technology, but it's in the service of consumer luxury goods, like really nice headphones and now VR headsets. And, and so I think that, that it was, a, they basically wanted to offer something to this subset of people who are at risk for this stuff. It's not a, you know, in their minds, it's not a huge number, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a meaningful, it, the people who it are, are meaningful people. Right. <laughs> and, and to them. And so I think like it was a concession in that sense. And I think they're still, they're still iterating and learning on about you know, the implications of that. There's features that kind of, have been rolled into the, 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 you know, the everyday user experience fr- that they learned from deploying lockdown mode and whatnot. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's a big deal, you know, and we're big fans of it. As Rocky said, I think as important, yeah. as important as it is, though, it's like, unless you're going to go around with the degraded user experience all the time, like you should know when to turn it on. And that's where we come in. Yeah. And also, I mean, I should be clear, like I'm, I'm not bad mouthing it. Like I think it act like, there is there is some evidence, although as Danny said, you know, I think there's still a lot of testing that needs to be done, and I think we're still kind of working through this. But like, there is some evidence that it, it would have prevented some of the Pegasus and, and Predator attacks, like Citizen Lab was published about recently. So for like a lot of people who are on the front lines of digital conflict, like it's a very useful tool. And like I do, I do, I do fundamentally like endorse it. I want to ask you guys, and Rocky in particular, I want to get your perspective on this since you've worked at the NSA. Um, <laughs> he, he, he chuckles knowingly, um, <laughs> should governments be doing more to shut down the market for these mercenary spyware products and zero day vulnerabilities? I mean, to me, it just seems anathema that there's a company called Zerodium that is out there explicitly openly trading in the market of zero days and Pegasus. And, you know, so we only sell to the good guys and <laughs> I think that's demonstrably uh, yeah, not true. Correct. <laughs> so. And the flip side of that is, should agencies like the FBI and the NSA, CIA, whatever, and other you know GCHQ, should should they be compelled 
to responsibly disclose their zero days instead of hoarding them. Because obviously I know that the, and th- this has been something that's gone back and forth. I know the Obama administration actually tried to put in some, some new rules around this. So what, what, what's your take on that? Oh boy. <laughs> now that's, that's, you, you want me to take it, Rocky? I can take <laughs> no, it. No, 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 no. I'd be happy to. So in some ways I think like, so, okay, this is a complicated question, mm-hmm. obviously. On the one hand, I think in some ways, like let's, let's think back ten years ago when remember when director James Comey got in that big fight with Apple over building like a responsible backdoor. Yeah. Like you can you can trace a decently straight path from kind of that debate to like the rise of NSO Group, right? Um, like but suddenly people realize that like they're like governments around the world were going to hack your phone. Were they just going to do it with Apple's blessing or without, right? And so that that decision, while it probably was the right one, you know, for Apple, and I actually agreed. I thought I thought the director of the FBI was was wrong for pushing for that. Like I think it did part, play a role in leading to this sort of rising our mm. spyware. So for every action, there's mm-hmm. a bullet off the reaction, right? You know, on the other hand, like I think probably what's all fair and good, and this is just my opinion. I'm not even going to say there's a lot of science behind this. This is just like how I feel as a former spook. Like I think it's all fair fair games for like the NSA to go toe to toe with Apple in terms of like, if if the NSA um, wants to uh, keep the country safe from terrorists abroad or, you know, keep track on foreign adversaries who we might go to war with. Like, I think it's all fair and good for NSA to go toe to toe with Apple and, and develop zero days on their own and, and even deploy zero days on their own. Where I get uncomfortable is this notion that any private company um, can just build their own zero days and then deploy them and use them on someone else's behalf. <laughs> right. And and like I just see no real reason for that. I'm actually per- I'm actually comfortable with like you know the Booz Allen Hamiltons of the world going out and building five million dollars zero days and selling them to the NSA. So long as the NSA is the one deploying them. Mm. The idea being the NSA in theory is at least response uh, answers to an elected official, right? In a democratic government. Mm-hmm. But like NSO group, like no, that should not be a thing. I, I, I pretty I pretty strongly feel that NSO group should not exist. And like there are seen frameworks out there to try to like regulate the commercial spyware business, like frameworks by which like treaties, by, like you know, like attest kind of yeah, like attestations by which that kind of like what NSO group is trying to do, except they would have to be transparent about it to like the EU government or the US government and be audited by those governments in terms of like who their customers are, how they're using kind the like tools, nuclear right? inspectors. So, like, they have to allow inspectors in and that kind of thing. Kind of, yeah. It could be done like that. But my gut, and I see Danny's dying to get in, so I'm going to let him here. <laughs> my gut is just that NSO group just should not exist. Danny. All right, Danny, bring it. Oh, I mean, I guess I'm just always sort of like uh, amused that we're surprised as people when spy agencies spy. Like, that's what they, they do. That's what spy agencies do is spy. Sure, right? And so it's like, it's, it's always a shocking revelation that, oh my God, the spies are spying. Can you believe it? How ungentlemanly <laughs> of them. Like, like that's what they do. I, and I'm not even going to editorialize on whether they should or shouldn't. I'm just saying they do. And that is what their, their charter is to do. That said, you know, you know, <laughs> there's you know, the debate about, you know, encryption backdoors is I think a, a, a sort of analogous one. And, and I think there's a constant sort of, complaint by by the kind of law enforcement community more than the espionage community because the espionage community doesn't just doesn't just doesn't talk right 
but there's a constant complaint like, oh, our jobs are hard. And it's kind of like, yeah, your job is supposed to be hard. Like, it, like you're supposed <laughs> to be, a, that's you're a supposed feature, to, not a bug. <laughs> right. You're, you're supposed to do your jobs, but also your job is supposed to be difficult. And, and by the way, it's amusing how many EFF stickers are on cars in the NSA parking lot. <laughs> that would be very inside. interesting to see. Oh, yeah. No, for <laughs> no, it's, it, oh, absolutely, I, yeah. Have fun driving around counting them, but you, there's, there's oh, quite wow, a number that's of them. Interesting. Um, but, but, uh, you know, and, and then you don't see the cops going around being like, hey, guys, like, you know, it'd be a lot easier for us to search your house if you just left your front door open. Right. <laughs> and it's like that. To me, that's the relevant analogy is like, no, we should have locks in our front doors and the cops have the batteries. Now, maybe it's because of this, like the locks that are gotten like infinitely good and the battering rams need to be infinitely yeah. large. But like, but like, I don't think going around telling every citizen to leave their front door open to make it easier for the cops to search your house is the answer to this question. I also don't think we should be surprised every time we find every time it's revealed that spies are spying. Like it's it, so that those are my and and then my last thing is it just it's just like I, I also don't know that like using nuclear weapons analogies is appropriate because like like at the end of the day they're not nuclear weapons. Oh sure, sure, <laughs> like sure. sure. I just went more with there's it. a category unto it. The uh, the public yeah. inspection regime I thought well, it might might be similar. Uh, yeah, certainly in the type of effects it's very different. But but the whole point is that it's these are like you know, generally like not attributable, you know, the whole feature of them is the lack of attribution. Hmm. And so I think like, I don't, I don't know that you're going to have like, like if you send a missile, you can see where the missile came yeah. from. But if you send a, you know, send a, a malwares, right. you like the whole idea is you, you don't have, you, you don't have to reveal where it came from. And I think that's, I don't know that like inspections re- regimes are going to be the answer. I, I don't know what the answer is, yeah. but I'm, these are just a few kind of a, a, a few fixed points in that conversation that I think we should lose sight of. As well. I mean, I, so my personal opinion I, I, is that I, I think I agree with Rocky and that we, there should not be a third party public marketplace for these sorts of things, though. I do think that certainly law enforcement intelligence agencies, that is their job to do this sort of thing. And espionage is a thing that needs to happen for national security as is counter espionage. And I think, you know, more in-house stuff makes sense. The degree to which, you know, any given zero day should be, you know, like if they find a bug in Windows, how much should they tell Microsoft or should they hoard it? I think that's a deeper issue that we could spend an hour on. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, whether it should, shouldn't, is, isn't, I mean, there is. It's just the point is that the, the, the state of the, the state of the world is that there is now a commercial market. And, and the big thing is we could talk regulation all we want, but it's an international yeah. market and we can make all the laws in the U.S. we want. And that only affects what, what happens in the U.S. or what the U.S. does or buys, right? But like when, you know, the, the, the regime in Azerbaijan is buying something from Israel, like we have no say in that and as Americans at least. Right. And so there's only so much policymaking you can do. And, and the fact is, is that there's been a demonstrated commercial, viable commercial market and someone will inevitably fill that market need one way or another. And that's, that's the brave new world we're in. And I think the, all we have, the, the most important thing is that we acknowledge that. The, the last thing I'll say though, just as a sort of, you know, been in the cybersecurity industry for, you know, quite a while is there's a ton of, myopia on the like the 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 vulnerability equity process and the zero days and stuff like that and outside of the realm that like rocky and i live in every and our team lives in every day like most of the cybersecurity stuff that happens in the everyday lives of everyday internet users has nothing to do with zero days hmm. 
right? Like we can, yeah. we can spend all this oxygen debating the vulnerability equities process. And meanwhile, like business email compromise right. is costing the industries billions and billions of dollars. And there's no technical exploit happening at all. It's just right. an email right. that looks like it's from your CEO sending an international wire transfer. Like, We'd be a lot better served if, like, the Social Security Administration would set up an API to verify that a Social Security number was real, right? Or credit card companies got more serious about fighting fraud. Like, there's a lot more low-hanging right, fruit right, than, right. than arguing about O-Days. So let's bring this down to earth. Let's, as we wrap up, let's get more personal and come back from the 30,000-foot view and get down to the tree level. As a user, what are some of your basic recommendations for the average user who wants better privacy and security settings? You know, what do you recommend that most people do? What are some basic hygiene maybe for security and privacy tips? Uh, let, let's get practical. Firstly, d- d- download the iVerify app and there's a whole, right. there's a whole series of guides in every category. Right, yeah. Like probably 20, 30 guides that will guide you through all. I mean, I think we have time to read them all to you on the on the show, but but we have done that exact exercise and said, here are all the things you should change. And set up and check if you want to run your phone in the most private way. Brock, I don't know what you're going to add. But. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, the single most important thing anybody can do for mobile security is to keep your operating system updated. Yeah. I mean, like the, the, the minute you get that little red dot that says update, that little red yeah. bubble that says update, do it. There's a good reason they're pushing that out. You know, it's not that Apple is trying to turn your phone into a brick with bloated software because they used to do that, but they don't now. <laughs> and, and now, like if there's a, if there's a little red bubble there, it is because probably our you know some one of our friends in the research world has found a vulnerability and that needs to be patched. Um, again, I verify helps with that. We usually tell people days, if not a, a week, before for Apple or Google does. So that's super useful. We've already talked about strong passcodes. I mean. It's a boring topic, but it's super helpful. The last thing I'll add, which is kind of, I think, like maybe less talked about, but is really important, is the role that encryption plays. Mm. I mean, for example, um, when you're like surfing the web on your phone or about to click on a link, make real sure that it's HTTPS, as in Mm. secure. (laughs) HTTP links are a highway to bad stuff um, uh, too often. So um, that's another little thing you can do just on your own to to be safe. And then the final thing, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think, uh, unfortunately, I think most breaches still happen because of social engineering to some degree. Like, yeah. I think it's, it's just phishing and, and, and bad links. So, you know, if you don't know the person who sent you a link, don't click on it. All right, gentlemen, that was fantastic. One last question before we go, what's next for iVerify? What's on the horizon for you guys? Maybe, you know, what new features and things like that? Any, uh, how, and you guys just recently spun off. Does that affect your plans at all? It definitely does. Uh, you know, I think I think we are definitely moving towards uh, so this this threat hunting vision, and I think that's really our intention is really to be the, the first mobile threat hunting company with a focus on harmonizing that privacy and security balance. We're, we have this new forensics tool in beta. Um, we're, we're now putting that out there in kind of the, the more sensitive places to start really doing that aggressive searching for what comes next. So you're trying to move beyond just the, 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 the app and just the, um, the kind of the base level protection and trying to really, really move into the advanced, um, the advanced stuff, uh, is really what's where our focus is right now. Yes. We're focused on the beta, you know, of, of our forensics tool. I would say, you know, we're also doing some things to work with like resellers. You know, there's a lot, I think, um, there's a lot of people out there who, um, just don't have any security on their phone at all. I mean, I, I think we started out today by saying about 40% of people haven't 
only about 40% of people use anything at all that leaves 60% that, that use nothing. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to add a base layer of security to a lot of people's phones um, in the enterprise setting. So we're going to be getting our product ready to, to support sort of uh, a scaled business focused on SMBs next year. All right. Fantastic, guys. It was really great talking to you. It's some really interesting discussion today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. You got it. That was really interesting. I'm so glad we got those guys on the show. Uh, we'll definitely have to have them back in the future. Uh, by the way, I apologize. You could probably hear it in my voice. I'm a little bit sick, a little bit under the weather. So I'm a little bit froggy uh, here as I do this outro. So I apologize for that. But just a couple quick things before we go. Um, I've been using the iVerify app on my phone for several weeks now, um, and it's been great. Uh, I really like that it's got these kind of built-in checklists that you can go through and do a self-audit uh, on your phone to make sure you've got all the right security settings. And there's a lot of tips um, built into this stuff, so it's great. It's only three bucks for the individual version, and that's not a subscription. That's like forever, so it's well worth the money, even if it's just to kind of go through these you know, these checklists that are built into the device to make sure you've got all your settings right. Uh, but as they said, also, it's also very good about notifying you better than Apple, actually, uh, weirdly, about letting you know that there's a software update. I mean, Apple's pretty good about that, though. Sometimes you have to go into security settings and go to the update thing to make it kind of, you know, kind of kick it to go check. One tip I did get from the guys is if you want to make sure that iVerify is constantly checking and notifying you uh, absolutely as soon as possible, uh, it's good to use it as a widget, which sort of kind of makes it run in the background all the time. Like, for example, uh, if you just restarted your phone, the uh, their app will probably not be running until you go to run it. But if you have a lock screen widget um, that's tied to that app running, then I think it kind of kickstarts it. And I also <laughs> followed up with them a little bit to see if we could figure out that question about if Apple or Google labels an app as malicious and removes it from its app store, are you notified? And I don't think you are. But according to Danny, if you're running the enterprise version of this, in other words, if your company, uh, if you get the enterprise version of iVerify, it actually will, on Android, let you know if there's malicious apps uh, or if apps have been flagged at the Play Store that are on your device. I really don't know why the Play Stores don't do this. I mean, it would seem to me that this would be an easy feature to build in and something that would be smart. I mean, if they've gone to the trouble of removing something from their app stores, they really ought to be letting the people know who have installed this app. And let's face it, they know who have installed this app. They should be letting them know like, hey, we just removed this from the app store. And here's why you might want to consider removing it from your device. Uh, also, we mentioned that XKCD cartoon. I'm sure I've mentioned that one before. Uh, XKCD is a, a really great strip by Randall Monroe. I actually had a chance to meet him. He came to talk in my area and I went to go see him, got a signed book. It was great. XKCD is a great cartoon. It comes out, I think it's once a week. And there are several classic ones that you'll probably see quoted, like like I do and this one. And this was one called Security. And I'm, and I'm not going to give it away. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. I would. It's much better just to go look at it than me trying to describe it to you. And finally, another link I put in the show notes, uh, Moxie Marlinspike, who is the brains behind Signal, at least as I understand it, he was the main developer of Signal back in the day. He has since gone on to other things. Um, but during his time at Signal, he was kind of bumping up against companies like Celebrite who were trying to get at that Signal data through the phones. And he's got a wonderful write-up about security flaws that he found in Celebrite's forensics equipment. And it's really kind of funny because the way the story starts, he's, uh, oh, look, I'm walking down the street and look what fell off the back of this truck. Hmm, this is a Celebrite kit. Let's 
let's investigate this. And it is really quite an interesting story. It's a funny read too, the way it's written. I would definitely check that out. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, Patrons, you will be getting some bonus content with Danny and Rocky coming up on Thursday, as usual. I asked them how they prepare for going to hacker conferences, what sort of security precautions they take when they go to things like DEF CON. And we just dug into some more uh, about security on phone. So anyway, as usual, you'll be getting your bonus content on Thursday. Next week, I've got a news show for you, and I'll be doing my annual best and worst gift guide for my tip of the week with holiday shopping season rapidly approaching. And then after that, we've got an interview on smart cities and uh, invasion of privacy. So lots of great stuff coming up. Subscribe if you haven't. And until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.